Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic, to cosplay, to Schitt's Creek, to Supernatural, and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. And welcome to this special episode of It's a Fandom Thing. Today, I am honored to be virtually sitting down with author Victor Aquista. He is joining me to talk about his latest novel, which is the second book in the Saga of Venom and Flame series called Revelation. Revelation is about a clandestine egg organization dead set on causing worldwide destruction and an ancient conspiracy about to be exposed. It is the exciting second book, like I said, in the Saga of Venom and Flame series. That's a high-stakes thriller that expertly mixes science, conspiracies, and legends to create a nail-biting adventure that's both memorable and, at times, even plausible. Book one is the series Serpent Rising, received Best New Age Fiction in the in the 2021 International Book Awards. He enjoys writing in many genres and exploring thought-provoking themes. He is a member of the Authors Guild, the Mystery Writers of America, the International Thriller Writers, and the Florida Writers Association. So welcome, Victor. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Aaron, and uh, thank you to your listeners. I really appreciate the uh, chance to, you know, have some good discussion and and have some fun while we're talking about uh, Revelation and anything else that we want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much. And it this is very much this novel to me is is terrifying in a lot of ways, and I mean that as a compliment. I don't mean that's like an insult. It's because there is a lot of stuff in it that does feel very um, jarring and almost like reality, but it involves the Illuminati a lot and apocalyptic events and an organization that wants a new world order. So what was it about those subjects that interested you? Well, um, you know, you mentioned the uh, Illuminati and apocalyptic events, and uh, let me let me tackle that second part first. I wanted the title Revelation to have two layers of meaning. The apocalypse, as described in the John's book in the Bible, Revelation, uh, references four horsemen, pestilence, disease, uh, famine, and widespread death. And the second layer of meaning, so that I wanted to you know, have that represented in the, in the book, and the second layer of meaning really has to do with revealing or the revelation of information, what we might call disclosure. So the title works on, on both of those. 
So the first part of your question is about the Illuminati. They're the masterminds of a multifaceted plan to call humanity, to establish a new world order, as you said. The plan includes all of those apocalyptic elements that I just mentioned, a pestilence, disease, famine, widespread death. Um, and it's a very you know, well-orchestrated plan. So the protagonist, Serena Mendez, really she's and the people, the small group of people that she's allied with uh, are tasked with exposing the Illuminati and revealing them as responsible in order to foil this plot. Now, beneath all of it, you know, is a vast conspiracy involving powerful and highly influential people. They're uh, working through corporations, governments, the military industrial complex, the media, essentially all aspects of society to orchestrate an, a cull of humanity. And that is, you know, frightening, but it's also, you know, plausible in a way and realistic. A lot of information's out there with respect to the Illuminati. And part of that uh, includes the preservation of bloodlines, you know, which extend back to antiquity as a way of, you know, maintaining pure bloodlines and power and so on. So the, the origins of the Illuminati can be traced through millennia. And that is an underlying story element. But, you know, I didn't make that up. That, that's, uh, you know, represented in, in many, many different, you know, places that you can research on the Internet and books and so on and so forth. And um, that, that history traces all the way back to Egypt and Mesopotamia and, and maybe even earlier and there's speculation about how human DNA, you know, might have been altered to enslave humanity. So a lot of this backstory and, and the threads that relate to the Illuminati, those are represented in the first book in the series. Um, ideally, people have read that because there are a lot of backstory elements that if you haven't read book one, then, you know, it's hard to catch up in book two. I can, I can duplicate some of that, but you really have to do it pretty selectively. And basically, I find all this stuff really interesting and fascinating, uh, particularly the origins of mankind and human genetics and things that relate to mind control, manipulation, using propaganda, which are you know some of the methods that the Illuminati utilize. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, stuff written in the series uh, that, uh, you know, I've I find very intriguing to think about and uh, and to write about. Yeah, yeah, because I think it's a lot of stuff that people either don't know a lot about or don't always necessarily want to think about, <laughs> to be honest, especially the genetic manipulation stuff. I think that's a big thing people don't really want to want to think about. Yeah. And and I know, you know, and you already you mentioned Serena, who is the main female character, and she's also called the light bringer, and she's working to help you know, expose this. And this is a huge task that you can tell weighs heavily on her um, and trying to stop the new world order and trying to expose the Illuminati. But she does seem to have this, I don't know, it's almost innocence or playfulness in a way about her. And do you think that was important? Why do you think that was important to have her be that way as a character? Or do you agree that she is a little bit innocent in a way, even though she's got this heavy burden? Oh, yeah. And in, in some ways, it parallels the, um, um, the kind of character that Frodo is. You know, he's, mm -hmm. he becomes a 
ring bearer, it's it's quite a burden. But he's he's fairly innocent, you know, humble hobbit that's tasked with this this huge undertaking, you know, to save Middle Earth. But um, I think Serena's character arc is really really interesting, and um, most of her backstory is covered in book one. But she's very dysfunctional. She's dysfunctional because of trauma that she experienced as a young child when an initiation into an ancient order of light bringers, the Candelaria, that went horribly wrong. It was very traumatic for her. Um, and she's developed PTSD. She's uh, pill popping, jobless, dysfunctional, essentially, at age 21, which is when the story opens. Well, and while it's easy to conclude that her dysfunction is due to PTSD, it's really that she's living out of sync with her true destiny, that she has this genetic destiny to be a Candelaria warrior in this great battle between uh, truth and falsehood, you know, that I've uh, fictionalized as the War of the Two Serpents. So she has a key role to play in this great battle, and there are, are forces who want to continue to enslave humanity, and there are very few people like her uh, fighting ag against the rich and the powerful and the influential to oppose them. So book one is, is an adventure, uh, you know, primarily it's a hero's journey or heroine's journey of self-discovery and transformation as she begins to learn of what her destiny is and her role in it. But by the end of book one, she's pretty, you know, she's pretty kick-ass. And in many ways, she's just in the very beginning. So here's that childlike thing. She's just in the beginning of learning who she truly is. And when she begins to understand the gravity and the scope of what she's trying to do, it's an enormous burden. And she's, you know, she's kind of a reluctant heroine. This isn't really an undertaking that she envisioned herself um, getting involved in. Um, and in some ways it's like the character Ray in Star Wars uh, initially, she's not ready to become a Jedi. She's not ready to fight the Sith. She She's reluctant. And part of her wants to run away. And that's very much true of Serena. Yeah, yeah. And you you can see that. I mean, there there is the whole scene early on in the novel where there is the homeless man who's asking for money and saying, you know, that it, and saying what he needs it for. And she's like, that's not what he needs it for. He's lying. And, and Bryson who's, who's with her, uh, th th with her during that time. It's like, well, no, you've got to, we've got to still help him. Even if he doesn't need that, we've got to help him. So it's like, you know, she's the real world can be such a daunting task for her because the bigger task is such a daunting thing of really trying to save the world. So it's like, that's a humongous task for anyone to take on. <laughs> There's a lot more reluctance in book one <laughs> going along this, this journey, which, you know, a hero's journey always has, you know, challenges and mishaps and things don't that don't go as well as, you know, uh, as planned. And um, there's a lot of times when she's ready to just cash in her chips and say, you know, I've had enough. And she's particularly disturbed by when, when she is aware of lies or falsehood. And with that homeless man, you know, he's holding up a sign. He's not really homeless. He's just, you know, panhandling, looking for money. And that really rubs her the wrong way. But Bryson is very much a counterbalance to her. He's, he's always kind of got the true North moral compass. And he says, you know, 
whatever whatever the guy's situation is, you know, he's in need. So let's help him out. And I kind of like that about that pairing because um, there is a little back and forth with them in the book, as as you know, as you know, because um, you're familiar with it. Yeah, it's very it's like almost like a yin yang thing back and forth with them very much. So, yeah. Yeah. And Serena is just one of many very strong female characters that you have in this book. And that, you know, as as a podcast that tends to focus a lot on talking about pop culture from the female perspective, that's always nice and important, I think, to see. Why was that so important for you to have like so many strong female characters in this? Well, this is really a great question. And and I have to um um I have to hopefully give it a great answer. Because I'm a I'm a big believer in balance and harmony. And you you just mentioned yin yang. So let me di- digress just just quickly for a moment and talk about the the cover symbol. Uh, on both book one and book two, there are variations of of something called an Ouroboros. An Ouroboros is a snake biting its tail, or in this case, two snakes biting one another's tail. And it's a symbol of cosmic harmony. Now, it's the central image on both book covers, and it's meant to evoke evoke this notion of harmony and balance, but also to represent the polarities of masculine and feminine, light and dark, uh, truth and falsehood. And those are all elements of this great war of the two serpents. Um, Now also, you know, included in the symbol is a yin-yang with uh, a sun on one part of the yin-yang and a moon on the other part. And these, again, are representations of of balance and polarities and so on. And this this snake biting its tail, it's cross-cultural. You find it in Egyptian, Greek, Hindu, Norse, and many other cultures. It's been used by uh, Gnostic philosophers to um, to denote the dual nature of both our earthly and divine uh, nature, matter, spirit, and all of these symbolic aspects. You know, I, I've gone gone into it in, in some detail in this little digression, but all of this is very relevant to the question you ask, because so much of human history has been characterized as uh, really masculine em- energy dominating over f- female energy. Mm-hmm. And so there isn't that balance. There isn't that cosmic harmony. And it's no coincidence that the Illuminati are all powerful men. And I believe for a long time that culturally and historically and anthropologically, uh, there's really been suppression of what people refer to as the divine feminine. So how do you balance that? Well, strong women. So I have some strong women in the book, but more importantly, wise women. There is there's, there there are some really really wise women characters in you know book one and book two. So a female protagonist uh, working to defeat all these powerful men that that kind of has a lot of appeal, not just from story construction. Not from it's like, well, the underdog, you know, fighting uh, against the, you know, more uh, powerful uh, and, and influential forces 
to try to defeat them. But the, the narrative of, you know, kind of a shift in consciousness leading to a balance of the divine masculine and the divine feminine. Now that to me, that's a tale worth writing about. And, and, and quite honestly, I very much wanted to have a, a flawed female character because I think there's so much more interesting, you know, perfect hero is that's boring. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I wanted to have strong villains because, you know, if you have a strong hero and a fairly ordinary villain, it's like I say, you know, Superman defeating bank robbers isn't very interesting. (laughs) 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 Um, No. You know, I I really I really wanted to have a dysfunctional um, character with a character arc that you know enabled them to go through a process of transformation to fully come into their own and be uh, carrying you know the the flame of truth in this case that's what the you know the Candelaria they're they're light bringers but they're they're carriers of the flame of truth to. Um, combat the venomous lies of, you know, of the bad guys and so on. So all of that, um, you know, to me required, you know, the right, the right assignment of male and female characters and and plot construction and, and all the things that go into creating a story. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, and I love that, that all the female characters are complex. They're not just, like you said, it's not just perfect. And it's not just because when you do, when you have a perfect character, if they're the good guy, it's, or girl, it's not going to be interesting because you have nothing really, I don't know, nothing really real to resonate with you. You can't really relate to the characters if they aren't flawed because we're flawed. Human beings are flawed naturally no matter how good or bad you are. So having that really, I think, helps as well. So, Well, I actually think that the female character, Juan Shan, who mm-hmm. is, you know, in the bad camp, I mean, she's essentially a genetically engineered um, human who's, you, you know, at least Dr. Lee, the, you know, the, the main bad guy, um, it's, it's his perception of perfect. But she's a very, very interesting character um, because those genetic manipulations, you know, had had effects, um, you know, mostly in in the area of of how um, she handles emotion and so on. So, yeah, I I think it's also interesting to, you know, have have good male, bad male, good female, bad female characters. And so, you know, there's, there's a little bit of all of that. Yes, yes. And speaking of Dr. Lee, who is terrifying, by the way, <laughs> I, a, a lot of the bad, the bad characters are really, really terrifying, um, especially the genetically mutated. I mean, that's just, to me, that's so, so scary. But your novel deals a lot with genetic manipulation. And I want to know what kind of research was involved in that? And, and why did you want to explore that in the novel? Well, full disclosure, genetics was kind of my least one of my least favorite subjects in college. <laughs> but I am, I am, you know, I have a, a background in medicine and, and so on. Um, you know, I'm a retired physician, this sort of thing. So I am absolutely fascinated by DNA, and uh, most of its secrets we really have yet to uncover. 
we know it can both receive and emit both light and sound energies. So think about that for a second. You, the DNA in your cells is both receiving light and sound, energetic, you know, um, input and emitting those. Um, and as an information storage molecule, it's it, it, astounding isn't a strong enough word because a thread of DNA is a billion times longer than its width. And a typical person has DNA threads wiring their body on the order of 125 billion, that's billion with a B, miles. So in you and me, 125 billion miles of DNA. Now, you can store a mess of data on an information highway that long. So, you know, what information is stored there? And what are the implications for the evolution of humanity? What human capacities can we decode by understanding DNA really at the level of quantum biology. Quantum biology is just a fascinating emerging field. And you know a lot of that has application in DNA research. So yes, a lot of research went into the series like uh, four years worth. Um, and some of that research had to do with DNA. Uh, a particularly influential book for me, which interestingly I only learned about after I was near the completion of book one um, where a lot of the DNA uh, background is, is, is laid. But that book is called The Cosmic Serpent, DNA and the Origins of Knowledge by Jeremy Narby. It's really interesting. It's, it's uh, written by an anthropologist. It's a nonfiction book, but um, it's just incredibly fascinating. And as you say, Do Dr. Lee, he's, you know, he's a bad dude. <laughs> <laughs> villain, uh, you know, antagonist, uh, but he's brilliant. He is brilliant when mm -hmm. it comes to understanding and altering DNA. And, you know, as I mentioned, the improved human, because that character Juan Chan is just one of example of the genetically enhanced humans that, that uh, he's breeding and, and producing and so on. But uh, the one that he's engineered as his version of perfection, well, you know, I figured if we're going to create a new world order and he's a mastermind, you know, kind of of the Illuminati who's working towards creation of this new world order, it probably needed to involve the creation of a new and improved human being in some way, shape or form. Part of why I write is uh, to incorporate social themes. So, you know, let's get people thinking about genetic engineering. Uh, let's get people thinking about uh, what, what is it about humanity as expressed by our genes that actually makes us human? And when you start making these alterations, are we, does it detract from our humanity? Does it add to our humanity? Uh, so these are the kinds of questions that, yeah, I, I, I hope that readers will, you know, enjoy the storytelling, but, you know, when they put the book down or, you know, when they put a scene or a chapter down uh, and say, oh, gee, I never really, that, that raises some interesting things. Let me think about that a little bit more. And there's a particularly thought-provoking scene uh, between uh, Bingagari Brindabella. He's an Australian geneticist, you know, goes by BB for short, mm -hmm. but he's, he's with the, the, you know, good camp. Um, and he's sort of a nemesis to Dr. Lee. They, they've 
they've battled before. Uh, Dr. Lee has, you know, always won. <laughs> but that scene uh, between BB and and Dr. Lee, where they're really talking about, um, you know, what what he's done to, you know, create a better human, and you know, BB's sort of saying, well, you know. I don't. I don't think this is better, <laughs> uh, and he's got good reasons for saying that. So, you know, it's it's interesting for me to write about a subject that I'm interested in and in, incorporate it into storytelling and so on and so forth. I have another novel that I wrote. It's a sci-fi novel. There's a lot of DNA stuff in there as well. Well, it is. It is very fascinating, and like I said, it is terrifying because, I mean there's a battle scene that you have very early on when you're introduced to a couple of the manipulated human beings, the genetically modified human beings. You've got the 24-K11s and then the N4s, which are the ones that Dr. Lee is saying he wants to keep for himself, basically, which is to me even creepier. I don't know. There was something about that. Even I mean, it's creepy to want to give them to other people, but also keeping them. For, I don't know. There was something kind of that made my skin crawl about that. And it's a very quick but incredibly disturbing battle scene between them, I think. And you also have in the very beginning, there is a scene of, you know, of a, of a disease ravaging a village except for a, a pregnant woman. And it's there's lots of blood and, you know, it's very scary and heartbreaking. And it's, and it's also this, another scary part about it is the people watching scenes of this are really excited by this. And I'm wondering, cause this is dark stuff. Um, was there, was there ever a part of you that any of this stuff was really disturbing to write at times or did you ever need to take like a break from it or anything like that? Yeah. So, you know, the two scenes that, that you, you mentioned, um, you know, the 24K11s are these genetically enhanced super soldiers and the N4s, um, that character Warren Shan is one of the N4s and she's actually the one that's involved in, in this battle. What, what's most disturbing to me about that scene is her response to being victorious because even though she's physically inferior, uh, after killing her, you know, super soldier sparring partner, She's totally emotionally flat, almost robotic. She just calmly explains how she defeated this, you know, physically superior um, soldier. And then, but later on, readers learn why she's so emotionally blunt. And it has to do with, you know, her gene editing and so on. In in the other scene that you mentioned with the the modified Hendra virus, that's a, a hemorrhagic virus. So it basically prevents you have the blood from clotting, and um, that's why there's a lot of blood in that scene. Um, the, the There's just one pregnant woman walking around. It's the opening chapter in the book, and it, it's meant to be disturbing. Uh, this one pregnant woman is walking around because she received um, uh, a, a blocking antiserum as part of a prenatal visit, which also incorporated in a, you know, Dr. Lee's special strand of DNA that, uh, you know, uh, combines with the fetal DNA. So it's really scary stuff. And it's very, very, I mean, the technology to do this kind of stuff is already there. But, you know, the, the other 
disturbing thing is not just the blood and the violence, but how, you know, the Illuminati members are, it's like, oh, look at this. This is like great. Man, yeah. oh, that's, this is really working well. It's, you know, it's part of our master plan because, you know, they're trying to call a lot of humanity, not, not just, you know, not just a few people, most of humanity. So challenging part for me as a writer is to write an action sequence that readers can visualize in their mind's eye without getting too bogged down in description. Um, high intensity action, you know, I think it's fairly easy to represent in film, but doing it through the written word is much more challenging because you, you, you know, you want to keep that tension going. You don't want to, you know, bog it down, but you can't use too many words. And so you have to have, um, you know, the, the, the right words so that people can, or reader can you know, visualize it in their mind's eye. And, you know, like I said, the book has dark elements. Um, and I found some of the scenes, particularly those that involve children, very disturbing. A, you know, you get a few early reviews. Um, and one reviewer mentioned that the book is gritty in some places. Yeah, yeah, gritty. That's kind of an understatement. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm really a, a nonviolent person. So it's not only against my nature to describe violence, it's, it's against my nature to even visualize it. But, you know, it, the, the sad the sad reality is this is is very plausible, um, both in uh, you know what can be done and in the way some people would would respond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that that's what makes it so terrifying, honestly, is because if you can see the reality in it and, and visualize that, yeah. But but light is very very important in in this novel as well. It, you know, you have even like lines like, you know, uh, like Dr. Lee and his society, they can't, they can't really survive in the light. It can actually hurt their skin. It can actually hurt them, harm them. And then you have, of course, you've got the Lightbringer and Serena. And I think even with having a character named Moon, that can even be considered part of light. What is the overall significance of light to you in a story like this? Why was that so significant? So, you know, getting back to that cover symbology, you know, light and dark, there's, there's sort of a, um, a battle going between the forces of light and the forces of darkness, but really need to balance those and so on. You know, the, the, the short answer really uh, about the significance of light um, for me really involves spirituality and metaphysics because, we're you know, we're striving towards enlightenment. Um, as part of our evolutionary path, um, the light body, which is you know part of uh, subtle energies, you know human aura uh, in in the esoteric energy fields around the human body, light is is a big part of that. Um, but in a in a more you know literary sense, the Candelaria are they're light bearers that you know they're, they're you know holding a lit candle um, to bring the flame of truth or the light of truth to illuminate the lies and the darkness of falsehood. So that's all, you know, uh, you know, just essentially part of, of, of the whole storyline involves light. I mean, there's no way to, you know, to, to get away from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I was, it was very interesting to me, especially when, 
you have characters that also, even though they keep talking about light, light would could literally like, could really harm them. But it's it's just an interesting little metaphor there. And then one of my favorite quotes in the novel is said by Serena, and this actually goes a little bit back to what you were earlier when we were talking about when she encounters that man, and of course a lot of her struggling with with her um, duty here or with her not her duty her path. But shortly after she arrives in Egypt, because she's sent to Egypt very early on for more of her training and everything. Um, And she says, the struggle to serve truth has too many martyrs along the way. I'm wondering, I'm just curious, what does that quote mean to you? Well, the, the book is largely about truth and falsehood because, you know, humankind is unable to easily distinguish truth from falsehood. And as a result, this makes us vulnerable to manipulation through fake news, propaganda, lies, um, you know, and, and other types of manipulation. And it's generally promulgated by people with an agenda. You know, you, you, you don't reveal the truth if you can manipulate it and twist it or, or, or misrepresent it in some way. You know, you're doing that because you're trying to achieve something. Or you you don't want you know the masses of humanity to 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 really know the truth, and I you know I fictionalize that as a great war of the two serpents. You know, one faction wants to withhold truth, really as a means of control, and the other uh, wants truth and knowledge to be made freely available to all. Well, when you know we talked about you know how masculine energies have you know historically been you know holding dominion really over feminine energies. But anytime there's a group with all the power uh, that's promoting falsehood, uh, the group championing truth, you know, they, they don't tend to do very well. <laughs> They're, you know, persecuted, burned as witches, accused of being heretics, stoned, martyred. You kind of get the idea. <laughs> yeah. So that, that quote is, you know, really meant to... Um, call attention to to all of that, uh, you know, persecution along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, as a lot of my listeners know, music is a very important thing to me. That's actually one of my absolute favorite things in the world is music and, and song and, and, and song appears to be a great tool among like, you know, the serpent sisters. And when, and when um, Serena goes to Egypt, she's got moon is doing, you know, the, the song and the music and, why did you choose to use song as such a powerful tool? Sure, sure. That, that's a good question also. I, I've been particularly interested in a long time in the healing power of the human voice. And there's, there's a lot of research on that. But sounds, uh, particularly tones at certain frequencies, are immensely positive, uh, powerful rather. If you're familiar with cymatics, um, that's... The, the power of the sound to create is really illustrated very beautifully with cymatics. And, you know, if listeners are not familiar with that, just look that up, C-Y-M-A-T-I-C-S, and look at some of the short videos because essentially, um, you know, there's a medium such as sand or cornstarch, uh, some very small, fine, particulate granular material that's put on a plate that can vibrate. And then certain frequencies um, or... Um, you entered into this vibrating plate or cause it to vibrate at certain frequencies. 
And then these beautiful geometric patterns emerge, uh, essentially created by the interaction of the medium and the sound. Now, if you believe sound can create, you build upon that to words and sequences of words and different frequencies and pitches and rhythm, and we call that song. So all of the, the song is really, um, you know, it's, it starts with sounds and then into words and then into words, you know, with, with certain pitch, rhythm, and frequency that becomes a song. And then, you know, if you think of creation, at least, you know, in, in the biblical version of it, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was made flesh. Well, what does that mean? To me, that, that is, you know, sound creating something. So the Candelaria and, you know, Serena, the main character, has the Candelaria genes. They um, have a gift as, as being very powerful through uh, using the fifth chakra. The fifth chakra is the energy vortex or a center which overlies the voice. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, it's only natural that you people with using the voice would sing and use song as one way to project those energies or move the or move energy using the voice. Yeah, I just I really liked it. And I I won't say anything about the last little blurb at the end of the novel. It also goes back a little bit to that. But I yeah, I just to me it just it really stuck out because I think uh, music and song and words can be so, so powerful. It's such a, such a powerful thing that can evoke so much emotion and can change you. And, you know, I just, so I just, I loved that a lot. So it, it is certainly fine with me if uh, someone with um, musical talent decides to record a song, um, the siren song, a call to the light, um, you know, with a haunting, mystical feminine voice and it becomes a bestseller that works for me <laughs> yeah yeah no spoiler there <laughs> no. so going back to bb now bb also mentions that you know he worked with genetics and even though he has, like you said, that talk with Dr. Lee about how, you know, this is not okay what you're doing and this is not good. Um, but do you think that genetic manipulation can ever be a good thing? Is there any kind of good part to it? Uh, yes, I, I do. And in fact, I think in many ways it, it you know, we, we have many instances where genetic manipulation is a good thing. You know, when you look at efforts to naturally select uh, food producing plants that are either, you know, disease resistant or, you know, they, they uh, produce uh, at a higher uh, level for the amount of acreage um, or, you know, genetic efforts to breed, you know, just simple breeding, nothing in the laboratory really, breeding better livestock, th those are genetic manipulations. And then, you know, in um, uh, medical research, uh, gene insertions using things like uh, CRISPR, which is uh, a laboratory gene editing technique. Uh, they have the, the potential, and in fact, they already have been useful in impacting cancer research and other diseases uh, with therapeutics and so on. Uh, genetically manipulated bacteria such as E. coli are important in bioengineering. So there's a lot of good stuff that uh, has come and hopefully will continue to come 
from genetic engineering and genetic manipulation, but it's very much a two-edged sword because the potential to alter DNA to produce superhumans or super soldiers or have a genetically superior baby, you know, particularly if you're, you know, wealthy and able to uh, afford, you know, those kinds of, uh, you know, manipulations to make a, a superior baby or hybridize humans, especially hybridizing humans and animal genes. That really, that kind of yeah. thought of that wigs me out. But, you know, you, you can potentially create um, a human with enhanced capabilities, such as greater strength or endurance or disease resistance. But these kinds of, you know, kind of the, 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 uh, the, the dark side of that uh, kind of genetic manipulation, that is really, really scary. And um, it's, it's more than science fiction. I mean, or, originally it was, you know, in stuff like Brave New World by Aldous Huxley and so on. But no, it's, it's not science fiction anymore. It's the real deal. It's here. In a, in a sense, genetic technology has the potential to do great good or great harm. And I mean, think of nuclear energy and nuclear bombs, you know, mm-hmm. great good, great harm. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of stuff like that where they can be great benefit, but depending on who's using them and what you're using them for, it can turn into something harmful for sure. Yeah. So I, so turning to Bryson a little bit. So Bryson very much loves Serena and has a very, very almost, you know, protective in a way, but also seems very in awe of her. And then he also meets in the novel Tarney, who comes over with BB and is part of that whole whole thing. And she's this very strong, very strong person, very attractive. And he seems instantly, uh, I would almost use the word smitten (laughs) with her (laughs) right away. Um, Do you think there is any similarity between Serena and Tarney, since it seems to be he's attracted to both of them, but I don't know if it's even for the same reason. But Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm not going to, because it's a little bit of a spoiler, but people should should look up the word Tarney in the Urban Dictionary and, and learn why I chose that word. <laughs> uh, because it's like, oh, so that's why he called her Tarney. So I'll just leave that as a little a little teaser. So Bryson, Bryson and his attractions. Yes, uh, well Bryson, you know he's an interesting character. He's he's super smart, but he's a super nerd, and he's really socially awkward when it comes to women and sorting out his feelings. Is that's just something that he struggles with, despite you know the fact that he's got genius intelligence. He doesn't really know how to navigate that that you know, part of his, his world. Um, so yeah, he's absolutely attracted to both women and they're both attracted to him, but his attraction to Serena is, you know, partly, as you say, uh, you know, because he is in awe of her or what she has you know, transformed into. And he's always been protected, protective of her. They have a, a long and very comfortable friendship um, with a lot of trust and so on. And they've, you know, they've, they've been through some adventures together. So there's that balance of masculine and feminine warrior um, because she's very much a, you know, a warrior woman at this point, but Bryson, you know, he identifies as a warrior. He's kind of like a nerd warrior. Um, and, and so there is a balance of those two, you know, masculine and feminine elements in the attraction they have to one another. 
But then Tarney, um, you know, she's really smart. I mean, she's really smart and she's really, really attractive. And I won't say that she flaunts it, but, you know, she knows it and, and she, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't hide it in any way. So she's got these overwhelming feminine energies, um, overpowering. And it's, you know, of course, Bryson's drawn to that. But I have to say, it, it's really a fun uh, subplot that's written into the story as, a, as the three of them try to navigate these attractions. And, and I do want to point out that, that all of those characters have flaws and um, character attributes that they need to wrestle with. You know, things like self-doubt, boundaries, vulnerabilities. I try to make my characters interesting and relatable. Mm-hmm. He's not the first, uh, you know, man to be attracted to two women at the same time. <laughs> no, no, and it, it happens for women too. So it's like... <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. Yes, yes, and I, I, I won't give another. That's towards the end that I just, I love this little scene. But yeah, which I, I, you know exactly which one I'm talking. I know about. exactly <laughs> what you're talking. About. I got some pushback on uh, Beta Reader from that. Oh really? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, but no, I, it, after I got the pushback, I actually strengthened it. <laughs> That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I'm going to have to go look that up on Urban Dictionary, too, once yeah. we're done. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. So I want to know, because I know when, when you're writing, you know, they say write what you know, and people inevitably, when they're writing, put themselves into a novel, whether they've even thinking about it or see themselves. So is there a character in the novel that you relate to more than others? Yes. Yes, absolutely. BB, you know, being a Gary Brindabello, the Australian geneticist, you know, he's in his mid fifties. That's a little younger than I am, but um, in some ways he's my idealized version of the way I want to be. He's smart, he's well-educated, and he's very, very much a Renaissance man. But he's, he's also so humble, and he's deeply spiritual, and he's very, very grounded in who he is and what he's trying to do. And um, you know, he's introspective, he's gentle. And all, all of those things, all of those are things that I aspire towards. Uh, so I just, um, you know... Um, I relate to that character, but believe me, there's bits and pieces of myself, good and bad, in in many of the other characters. So uh, I'll leave it to the readers, and especially since they don't know me, to figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, lastly, I really want to know because I always find this to be a very interesting question and and to hear, because I want to know: Did you learn anything about yourself, creatively or personally, while writing this novel? Oh, for sure. You know, both creatively and personally. Creatively, I learned and hopefully continue to learn how to write better to improve my storytelling. Um, And I I distinguish between those two because good writing from a technical and craft perspective to me doesn't always, uh, you know, translate to good storytelling. Uh, And you can have a great story that's just poorly written uh, and that detracts from it. But you can write great, but just not really have a very interesting story to tell. So I think creatively, both my storytelling and my writing uh, continue to improve. And then from a, a personal perspective, uh, the research and writing of this particular novel opened up some new doors of, of interest for myself and uh, understanding as well. You know, in, in, in so many ways, there's just so much 
to learn about so many things. I, I repeated that word so, so many times. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, the, the things that I learned um, in the process of writing this book, researching it, writing it, um, there, there's been a lot of, you know, an educational learning curve, and it's been mind expanding in a lot of ways for me. So thanks for, for asking that. And, you know, hopefully in my own character arc <laughs> that, you know, I, I continue to learn and, uh, you know, on a creative, um, you know, oh, from a creative perspective and from a personal perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and then I just want to, what's next for you? Are you working on another novel or what is that you can reveal? I know there's stuff you probably can't talk about, but. Oh, no, no. I, well, the book that's coming out, um, Revelation, um, and um, that's my fifth book. I've already written a sixth book. It happens to be a satire. It's completely, oh. com completely, completely different. And I'm uh, shopping for an agent on that because that's, uh, you know, that's the type of writing I haven't done before. And I'm working on my uh, seventh book. It's a novel. It's contemporary fiction. A lot of racial injustice themes in it. A lot of thriller elements in it as well. And that's coming along pretty well. Um, so uh, hopefully uh, by the end of the year, at least I'll have uh, you know finished and, and maybe polished uh, a first or second draft on that. Certainly we should have finished the first draft by then. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. And the satire too. I, I love satire. So. Yeah, very, very interesting. Well, well, thank you so much, Victor, for speaking with me. Can, can I just do some shameless self-promotion? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what we're going to do next, yes. I yes. want your listeners to to know that, um, you know, uh, you know how to find me, um, my website, and so on and so forth. But I also just wanted to share that my, my debut sci-fi novel, uh, Sentient, uh, that I, I recently signed a book with a foreign publisher to do a German language translated version of that. And I'm pretty excited about um, having that come out in a new market. As far as getting in touch with me, uh, my website is just my name, victoraquista.com, Facebook author, Victor Aquista author, <laughs> Twitter, Instagram, at Victor Aquista, you know, kind of not too difficult to find me. And then, you know, I have an Amazon um, page with, uh, with a batch of stuff on it, you know, short stories and, and some of my nonfiction books and, and what have you. Awesome. Yes. And that website will be in our show notes. So feel free to click over there. Anyone listening that wants to go over to that page and find it. And then also, um, you know, if you, if you have any trouble finding Victor on social media, which you shouldn't, but if you have any trouble, uh, we are following him as well. So you can also go to who we are following and you can find him there too. So thank you again, Victor, so much for talking with me. I really enjoyed talking with you about your novel. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Aaron. And thanks uh, to your listeners as well. I appreciate it. And this is Aaron. You can follow me on Twitter at eAprilBeauty. The E and the A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod on twitter at fandom thing pod no it's in that one on instagram at it's a fandom thing pod on tiktok at it's a fandom thing pod if you would like to be a potential interview guest on the show feel free to reach out to us by heading on over to our website it's a fandom thing pod.com 
and clicking the Contact Us button there. So thank you very much. And remember, until next time, it's a fandom thing. Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate.